0: Magazines are going towards niche and that's a good thing. I think that's a quality move for the industry where once you can zero in on on a particular section of readers, regardless of what the subject matter is, you now have a very, very good relationship with that reader, that enthusiast, that activist in whatever field that is. And then that should, done properly, equate to a very lucrative operation.
1: Hello everybody and welcome back to Media Voices. We are a media focused podcast that takes a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe.
2: I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Huston. And that extract you've just heard is from Bo Sachs. He is a columnist and a lecturer with a long career in magazines and publishing. So we talked about trends that have come and gone why he thinks there's strength in print is a niche product, and why we're currently in the golden age of publishing, which we did have a bit of disagreement about. <laughs> um, he actually publishes the longest-running e-newsletter in the world as well, so I did also have to ask him what he makes of the current rush of newsletters.
1: Fantastic.
3: Yay, Bo! <laughs> Looking forward to that.
1: Well, before that, and actually even before we get to our news roundup, we do want to talk about an upcoming Conversations episode that we've got. So I spoke to Eurosport and Podinstall to find out what it takes to make great evergreen content into audio content this Wednesday. Please do listen out for that because it contains a fascinating case study in how Eurosport has turned a lot of its old content into something new and fresh in audio. But before that, Peter, you have written this headline, I imagine but just uh, just as a bit of a uh, i suppose a pressy for the audience the new york based hedge fund Alden global capital known for is it known for anything else other than buying up newspaper chains and then just cutting costs is it known, the known for anything only else so it got shareholder approval for its $633 million bid to acquire the Tribune Publishing newspaper chain, which includes the Chicago Tribune, the Baltimore Sun, and the New York Daily News. This, um, uh,
2: this is going to sound really stupid. That's not a lot of money.
1: Mm, get I wouldn't you. mind it. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, yeah, I know what you mean. But, I, oh God, the God, the, the reaction I saw to this online was 100% negative. I have... God, this just to me feels like it was an, an inevitability. It was mooted a long time ago and people were in outrage when it was even proposed. So what is what effect is this likely to have on local publishing in the US?
3: The same effect that has been sort of snowballing through the US for mm-hmm. years. I mean, I, I, I think you know maybe before we get into this, we should talk about why it matters because mm-hmm. some people are going to be saying well, why do I care about the Baltimore Sun um, if I'm in England or Scotland or mm-hmm. Germany or whatever? But I think that it's that that underlying principle that's rap- <laughs> rapacious capitalism striking again.
1: Yeah. Media and plurality about to take a hit.
3: Well, exactly. It's the idea that um, the focus for these papers now is not... Uh, is not Holding people to account, it's profit, pure profit. Mm. Um,
1: and, okay, just to play devil's Avocado, you could you, we have we constantly get comment from people who say, "Well, in fact, you can't do the latter without the former. Newspapers have to make a profit in order to be able to hold the powerful to account." Which that's is true,
3: but but here's the point with this, and this mm. is about I think people miss. People think these papers are unprofitable. They're not. They're in a profit over ten percent on average, exactly.
2: But that's but that's not enough for Alden, is it? And and I think that's the, this report said that Alden's looking to get them to exceed twenty percent, and you you kind of just end up squeezing and squeezing them, and then everything else suffers.
1: Mm. Exactly. So
3: so yeah. like, go, going back to what actually happened, uh, so Alden, they already own hundred newspapers, two hundred publications, and they have a track record of going in and cutting. You know they consolidate, they sell real estate. Although apparently there's not a lot of real estate left at this this group that they bought, which is maybe why it's only six hundred and thirty three million and stuff.
1: Well, land's the one thing they're not making any more of, right?
3: <laughs> you know that uh, one of the things that you know one of the things that's in this report is okay. Everyone that buys something consolidates the stuff, and that's what happened when. Future bought TI, and mm. when, you know, when other, what was the other one in the States? Was it Meredith bought? I can't remember who they bought, but there was consolidation, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, you know, your HR, your finance staff, you you got a lot exactly. of duplicates at that, that end up being cut down. Yeah.
3: These guys cut 75% of the staff at Papers in a six-year period. That's unreal. As You know, that's reported by the union. So we're not talking, you know, a light trim here. We're talking decimation, and I think that's why we're not talking
1: decimation. We're talking way worse than decimation. That's why you're seeing the
3: the, the negative response that you're seeing on your timeline.
1: Yeah. Well, ahead of it, what was it was it Pro- Project Mayhem, which is an amazing name for that? Saw journalists on Tribune titles desperately looking for potential buyers who are more likely to embrace the public-minded aspirations of journalism. What this puts me in mind of, though, is... Do you remember there was a discussion, a couple of... God, we have been having the discussion for years about matching billionaire philanthropists with this, and then just this last couple of years, we've seen that that itself is not a safe option. So this olden thing sound, sounded like an inevitability just in the worst possible way.
3: I don't know. I mean, the other side of that says they've... Where it looked like they were just going to pay cash for this, Mm. they've actually there's a deal written into the deal they can they can borrow as much as half of the deal price, which just makes it even worse because then they end up servicing the debt, and that that hasn't happened in the UK in uh, in the sense of newspapers, but it's happened in magazine publishing. You you know, where they're just everything's about servicing the debt, and oh, just awful.
1: You know what's going to be bad as well is this isn't going to be a sort of well I assume that there will be kind of that instant hammer of redundancies and uh, people being fired, but it's it's going to be the effect that the cuts have on a those newspapers' identities and b their ability to actually do their jobs. They're just going to become so anodyne, despite the best like efforts of the staff. And what's the... What's We the, we have a saying about you can't cut. What you can't is it? cut
2: your way to profitability, ah. but but they're they're already profitable. That's that's mm. the thing, and I think it it's gonna make them, yes, it'll make them more profitable in the short term, but in the long term, it's gonna be really, really damaging.
1: But Alden don't give a shit.
3: No, because that's the point. You can cut your way to short-term profitability. mm.
2: This has reminded me though, that um, that Tribune were actually rebranded Tronk a couple of years ago.
1: Oh my God, I completely forgot about Tronk. I'd forgotten about it as well. I I,
2: I assume basically nobody picked it up, but Chris, I I remember
1: discussing this with you a couple of years ago. (laughs) That was so bad. (laughs)
3: <laughs> anyway this is a bad thing uh, I think media voices can can settle on the idea that this is a bad thing
1: unequivocally a bad thing
3: yes I mean okay so <laughs> looking for a looking for a positive What what's the business model <laughs> in the next three
1: minutes let's solve
3: the regional local we're, we're going to do we're going to armchair CEO
1: the US local news market yeah
3: any okay. local news market, though, it's the same problem.
2: I mean, th- there is there is some interesting stuff starting to go on in there, like it's starting to pick up again in the US local news market. So, I mean, Axios is one of the examples of this, where they've actually they, they're kind of, I mean, they're, obviously they're doing it as a newsletter, but they're, they're taking the kind of newsletter led approach, where they've got a couple of reporters who produce a, a local newsletter, and I I think that they're they're onto something because they, they don't normally take bets on things that don't work out. And I'm going to be quite interested to see where that goes in the next couple of years because if if, if they nail it mm. that's the, the model they've they've proposed is one that could actually they could scale out to the rest of the. US very very quickly that's one of the reasons they've done it um and also I think yeah a lot of the work that the Google News initiative has done with local news and the compass project and things in, in the US like that there is there is still potential in local news there is still a lot that could be done and I think that there are a fair few places that are starting to recognize that and starting to pick back up on it
1: yeah, did we include something? We've we've included a couple of case studies lately in our newsletter, which you can get by going to Voices.media Media and signing up. Um, but yeah, I think that a lot of the idea is that the US local news titles focus on service journalism of the sort of the most literal sense, and the ones who are doubling down on that are the ones that are really succeeding. Obviously, you can't do that if you if you're having costs just stripped away. But I like the idea that it's you know they they act as a sort of community hub as much as they do a sort of news dissemination service. Yeah,
2: and and, and they like they've had a lot of lessons to learn over the last couple of years. It's the same lessons that you yeah, know have had to learn in the UK that actually that you can't cover national news in the same way if you're a local news title and you're much better doubling down on like properly local coverage even if you don't get the clicks.
3: That's the point, isn't it? It's it's understanding that you can't do it at scale <clears throat> by you know, by definition. I think the axios thing is interesting but are they not now in talks with Springer? Axel Springer, yeah. That's a that's an interesting one.
1: Huh? I think that makes sense for both parties. That, talking about inevitability, so I think that as soon as that was mooted, that was going to go through. Anyway, that's...
3: Think, does it, <laughs> isn't, isn't Insider and Axios banging up against each other? There?
1: Well, presumably, yeah, but there won't be... Uh, I think Axios has a differentiation just in terms of actually who's doing it. And it's sort of relatively... It's got a different distribution channel for most of its stuff.
2: Mm.
3: Anyway, we didn't really solve that there, guys. One yeah, we
1: did. We, we suggest that if you if you want to succeed in US local news, move to the Nordic countries.
3: <laughs> okay, start start a Facebook private group. <laughs> <laughs> and now news in brief. Snap. Do you remember Snap? Mm-hmm. They've debuted a number of new products, including augmented reality lenses. I think I've read that story months ago or even years ago. <laughs> Didn't they have augmented reality lenses years ago? No, they, so they, they, they had th- filters. They, they, they
0: had,
2: had like AR filters and stuff. They had cir- the circular glasses that mm. did like the circular video. Yeah. Uh, the spectacles. <laughs> so it's, it's spectacles that have got this AR update now.
3: Hmm. Anyway, um, they're going to. Build these augmented reality lenses using Snapchat's developer tools. The platform has announced that they have, get this, Mm. 500 million monthly active users. I had completely forgotten about Snapchat.
1: It's been hit hard by Apple's iOS. Well,
2: and Facebook shamelessly copying every single (laughs) feature they have. But I think they're
1: actually doing better than people expected.
2: Yeah. And Spotify is having a push to make podcasts more accessible by launching an automatic podcast transcription oh, feature. No. Hold it, Peter, hold it. <laughs> so the feature's rolling out in beta over the coming weeks, and Spotify have said that they eventually want to have transcripts for all podcasts on Spotify.
3: Go. Well, one, that is the most boring thing on the planet. <laughs> Two, th- has anyone ever actually read, I mean, I know we have, <laughs> an AI-generated transcript? Forget forget the fact that I am Scottish and AI has a major, major problem with me, mm. but even just with people that have boring accents.
2: Yeah. Uh, know, a, a, lot, a lot of it's things like punctuation, where it just, it, it, it can't get the punctuation right. So you just end up with yeah. just this, this complete, like, ham of words.
1: <laughs> I like, think so a uh, lot of them are certainly better than they were. Accessibility. Well, I'm, I'm obviously impressed by some of them, but it's not there yet.
2: I think, I think accessibility well, yeah. is quite important here in yeah. that, the, the, you know, the bigger podcasts get, the, the more people are going to want to listen to them, and accessibility is really important. I think it's, is this not better than nothing?
3: No. It's <laughs> not. No, seriously, it's not. Because some of these transcripts make no sense whatsoever when you try and read them back.
1: Well mm.
3: <laughs> I don't know. Also, okay i'll I'll see your accessibility issue and I'll raise you diversity
1: Oh, yeah, because Did you what... read that did you read that piece earlier in the week about celebs just monopolizing the podcast space now
3: yeah, it's awful and what you' go, all you're going to end up with is these anodyne second time we've used that this episode ding damn podcast with people that speak in a way that the AI can understand and transcribe what they say and they'll be born as shit. So to Spotify's auto transcript. Mm. Say. And
2: by the way, we have all of our interviews, we've got transcripts <laughs> on the website. <laughs> no, we, yeah. we, we do because accessibility is important. Um, but we've got the correct transcripts, which Rachel uh, is very lovely and does for us every week. Um, so yeah, they're on our website, voices.media/slash transcripts.
1: You know what I think is fun as well is the, the Guardian this week has done almost exactly the opposite and it's turned some of its um, written content into audio. In service of accessibility for blind and partially sighted people.
3: I'm not arguing against the accessibility. I'm arguing against the fact that people will not invest. Moving on. Moving on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And DuckDuckGo is the latest browser to say that they're going to block Google's latest update, which enables Flocks or Federated Learning of Cohorts, which is Google's answer to replacing third party cookies. Uh, So it's joining Firefox, Brave, and Microsoft owned hosting platform GitHub in the Flock rejection. It's uh, flocked.
2: Uh, <laughs> see, it rejection's all very well, but what's your alternative?
1: Yeah. Exactly. Can we also, actually, that's, that's reminding me, can we also take a uh, a minute to just pay respect to Microsoft Internet Explorer, which is finally being retired next year?
3: Uh, more positive news. Future has announced that it's acquiring the US edition of Marie Claire. These guys are on an absolute tear. Mm. Uh, it already publishes the uh, Marie Claire in the UK because of its Ti acquisition, Ti Media acquisition. Um, there's a big, <laughs> this is everything with Future these days comes back to e-commerce. There's yeah. a big e-commerce play on Marie Claire, um, and then, you know, again, another smart move from Future.
2: Yeah, I was reading partly that they they end up making about fifty percent of their revenues in the US, so they basically just mm. want to take a bigger share of the market over there.
3: Didn't they try? Didn't they try and get into the US before and it didn't work? I'm sure when they scaled back, they had to shut down a lot of you.
1: Yeah, that sounds about that sounds right to me. But you know what? At least this has the synergy between the titles, and it does offer them that kind of e-commerce opportunity, which they are hammering so hard.
2: And Axel Springer and Facebook have agreed on a quote "global cooperation deal mm. where content from the publisher will be featured on Facebook's news product. Um, CEO Matthias Dopfner has said that the relationship between content providers and platforms has now become fairer and more predictable for both sides.
3: <laughs> Sorry, predictably. <Shit. laughs> Yeah.
2: Uh, content from Springer's German titles, Build, Welt, Business Insider, and Computer Build will be distributed in Facebook News at its German launch. And actually, this is quite significant because quite a few German publishers have been holding out, and now, now as so Springer have basically been like, "Yeah, cool." Um, Facebook have got quite a good in into the German market. <sighs> no, it's all right fair. if you're big and you can negotiate yeah. those kind of deals. It's the small people that get screwed.
1: And AT&T and Discovery Inc. have announced a deal which would see WarnerMedia spun off and combined with Discovery in a new standalone media company. Um, the fact that they have spun off their sort of media holdings means that, I think I, I think we said it in the newsletter this week, this is the, the death of vertical integration, the idea that you can succeed by owning content creation and content distribution channels. The The numbers in these deals are just mm. insane.
3: Ben, ben Thompson's, I think we linked to that from the newsletter. Ben Thompson's take on this is really interesting. It's stratagery, mm. you know, where he's basically trying to separate the, the idea of distribution, which is the AT&T type side of it, with the actual demand-driven content side of it. It's mm. well worth reading
1: that. You're all, you always get the TikTok, and um, honestly, we I'm no all. longer have plausible deniability. to deny that you love tiktok
3: i actually almost signed up for tiktok (laughs) um, because of this this uh fitness person who just made me feel really happy uh tiktok has launched a hashtag fact check your feed campaign to support media literacy yeah you know what we see it every time this comes up we need an old person media literacy hashtag um and, and not probably on tiktok Uh, Anyway, TikTok has an issue, as all the platforms do, with vaccine misinformation. Mm. Um, And the hashtag is to try and help people. Well, the campaign is to try and help people on TikTok have the skills they need to critically engage with the content. Amen to that.
1: And... We're going to talk about the BBC again at some point. We just think that everything is a bit too fresh at the moment, and frankly, it's hard to sort of wrap our heads around the rampant hypocrisy of those criticising the BBC, but also the implications this is going to have for the BBC. So we're going to take a little bit of time, and we'll probably talk about it next week.
3: I was just going to say, I can't do rapacious capitalism (laughs) and rampant hypocrisy in the same episode.
2: So this week I spoke to Bo Sachs, a columnist and lecturer with a long career in magazines and publishing. I started by asking him how he got to where he is now as a consultant and what his background is in the publishing world.
0: Serendipity has gotten me <laughs> where I am. Uh, truthfully, I've been in the right place at the right time, having nothing to do with talent. Um, but I started a newspaper when I was 19 years old, um, not knowing how tough a weekly newspaper is. Um, But we did it for a few years, and uh, from that it parlayed into starting High Times Magazine, uh, which was a very controversial subject Uh, back in the 70s. We started High Times in 1974, and again, serendipity, I didn't know anything about publishing a magazine, Uh, so every one of us learned on the job, and we made it up as we went along. Um, There were rules, but we didn't know what they were, (laughs) so we didn't follow any. Um, and after that, I worked for um, other major corporations, uh, Ziff Davis, um, which is a good one to mention. You ask about how my career grew. Um, by this time in my career, I was very excellent in the production of magazines, manufacturing. And this is when America Online uh, started to want to put diskettes into and onto magazines. so. The company job me out to America Online to, it wasn't just me, it was a team, to figure out how to do that. And at the end of the process, we figured it out and AOL gave me an email account. And I'm like, this is 1988, 89, what's email? <laughs> um, but since I had been a publisher since 71, the thought of sending words through the phone was mystifying. So I just started fooling around. Um, and oddly enough, by '93, I had a thousand subscribers.
2: So, in that sense, I think you've, you've said before that um, your newsletter is actually probably one of the longest running in the world.
0: It's the oldest one that I've know of, and I've been saying it's the oldest one for ten years, and nobody's corrected me.
2: <laughs> what's What's kept it going?
0: Um, that's an interesting question. I didn't design to do a newsletter. I was first intrigued by sending words over the phone. Um, And then I figured if I knew how to do that, I'd be more employable than the next guy. I'd have an extra skill set. And that was the modus operandi in the early days. I wasn't trying to create a business. I was trying to stay employable. So when I started sending this stuff out, I had a criteria, the same criteria that I have now I had then this is the stuff you need to know to keep your job. That's my secret formula. And everything I send out from my perspective is, yeah, you really need to know about this to stay in in the media field. Um, That formula has been very successful.
2: Have you ever not sent a newsletter?
0: (laughs) Yes. I want to explain to you and your readership, uh, your listening ship, how smart I am. The only time in (laughs) in almost 30 years that I did not send out my newsletter uh, was on my honeymoon.
2: That is very wise.
0: <laughs> yes. Other than that, it goes out daily, no matter if I'm on vacation, it doesn't matter where I am, it goes out.
2: So how do you find the stories for your, for your newsletters? Is that changed over the last 20 years?
0: No, actually that's been pretty consistent, although I'm always in the hunt for news sites that are relevant to our industry here's the other secret if you go to my website you'll see 25 or 30 listings of where I source my information from if I do find a new valuable resource I put it in that list and so every day I start at the top of this or list of links and I work my way down until I have three quality stories sometimes it takes two hours sometimes it takes eight hours um, the second criteria of what I do, first is this is what you need to know. The second criteria is I do not send junk. I will yeah. never, ever send fluff. So if it takes me longer to find it, so be it. And if and if that doesn't work, I'll write something.
2: And was there a point that you sort of realized that actually you could probably make some some ad revenue from this?
0: I do make ad revenue from it. Um... It's not documented, but it's <laughs> at least 20 years. Okay. 15, 15 to 20 years. And the funny thing is, that my first advertiser had to beg me. It took him a year, because I just wanted to be you know, employed and employable, so I wasn't looking for revenue. And the guy wanted to advertise me. Nah, I don't think so. I got a good thing going here. I don't want any advertising. And, He made me an offer I couldn't refuse, and he was with me for 10 or 15 years.
2: Wow. So, given that you've got one of the longest-running newsletters in the world, what do you make of the sudden kind of rush to newsletters that we seem to be seeing in the industry now?
0: I laugh every time (laughs) I read that. Um, Yeah, it's, 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 it's a mystery to me that people have discovered newsletters, and it's sort of the difference between push and pull. If you have a website or even a newsstand, people stumble upon your product. If you sell a subscription, or in my case, you sign up for the newsletter, I'm pushing it out to you. You do not have to remember to come to my website. You don't have to remember to come to the newsstand. And so long as you produce quality work, people let you in.
2: I mean, that in a way was one of the early promises of platforms is that if you put your content on there, you push it to people, but then platforms almost turned that into a a pull relationship, didn't they, that you had to then try and, well, you had to pay to reach people, which just seems, well, it's pretty scandalous in my opinion, but there
0: we are. Agreed.
2: Over your career, you must have seen quite a lot of trends sort of come and go. So things like the move to subscriptions, newsletters, reader revenue, are, are things like that new or have they been and gone before?
0: Uh, they've, oh, there's, there's nothing we're doing today that's different, not, except for the platforms, except for the substrates. And I've always been substrate and different. Whatever the reader wants, that's what I'm going to deliver. Some readers want audio. Some readers want print. Some readers want uh, an internet connection to get their news. Um, fine, we have to deliver what they want. And everybody's different. And I would make a case that today, there was a time when every magazine publisher had pretty much the same business model as any other magazine publisher. I think you're going to find today that there's no two magazines or media companies that have the same business plan. They're all different.
2: Doesn't that make it quite difficult to define what is a publisher? Because you get publishers today that, you know, they'll make money from... Um, e-commerce or, or or sort of all these other things. So, so what actually makes a, a publisher now? There,
0: there There is no clear definition anymore. You know, we used to be in the magazine business. I used to be in the magazine business. Now they call it magazine media. What is that? It's nothing. Here's the, the lowest common denominator that I can make is that we sell words and thought for a profit. I'm indifferent on how we distribute it.
2: I suppose I've seen some, um, I've seen some publishers launch sort of quote magazines on Instagram and that's, I mean that then just gets to say, that's just pictures.
0: Yeah. I mean, if, but the thing is, if you want to call it a magazine, so be it. As long as you can get your readers to understand what, who you are and what you are and what your identity is, fine.
2: I'm talking of magazines, print is something that you comment on a lot in your newsletters. Is print going to have a resurgence or is it resigned to becoming a niche product?
0: it's interesting the way you phrase that resigned to a niche product i object <laughs> i don't find i don't find niche as belittling um yeah magazines are going towards niche and that's a good thing i think that's a quality move for the industry where once you can zero in on on a particular section of readers regardless of what the subject matter is you now have a very, very good relationship with that reader, that enthusiast, that activist in whatever field that is. And then that should, done properly, equate to a very lucrative operation. So small is good.
2: I suppose though, if you're a print or like a print news magazine or a newspaper publisher, that sort of, you know, the 60s and 70s when, when print was, was huge and you were selling millions of copies, you you might see it as kind of being resigned to... Yes. I suppose it's making making money in a different kind of way, but de- definitely not the the millions and millions of pounds you were before.
0: No, it's all, life's about perspective. Um, if you persp- when I worked at McCall's magazine, we had a six and a half million circulation. We had um, half a dozen titles with which were over a million circulation. So, yeah, that's true. Um, and there there was large circ then, but you either flow with the river or you drown. So um, I'm actually, again, indifferent as to, well, I once had a big circulation magazine, you know, woe to my industry. <laughs> no, just <laughs> get out there and fight. Make it right. Produce quality material.
2: Um, and kind of related to that, you, you said, um, I think it was just before the pandemic struck at the end of 2019, um, you said that this is the new golden age of publishing. Um, and I know nobody could have really foreseen the pandemic, but do you still believe two years later that this is actually the golden age or has COVID sort of dented that a little bit?
0: Not at all. I think COVID accelerated, wherever the magazine industry was going, it's accelerated it by five or 10 years. Really? We're doing things we never dreamed about doing before. Um, new platforms come out every day that facilitate communication. Taking the broad range of what publishing is, but if you go back to what I said, distributing thought and words for a profit, there's never been a better time to be in publishing. But
2: is it then a golden age for publishers? Because related to that, like anybody can publish, you know, I, I can go on Instagram or TikTok or, or I can create a website and publish anything I want. But if you're then a professional publisher, that presents some challenges.
0: Um, I don't think I agree with you. I was not a professional publisher when I started High Times. I didn't know what I was doing. We were remarkably successful. Just because you're not a professional doesn't mean you don't have a good idea and a good business plan and the cap- capability to make revenue. And that's the thing. There's there's millions of Instagrammers. How many are true influencers making money? Not a lot. <laughs> but they're out there. And They're were inexperienced until they got their message down. Now they're the professionals.
2: Yeah, so I, I suppose in that sense, publishing has been democratized.
0: Yeah. You no longer need to own the press.
2: Is that a good thing though? Because I think if if you look at a lot of the misinformation problems and, and fake news and things have, have sprung up from that.
0: No, that's the that's the dark side. That's the dark side. Yeah, the democratization of knowledge is theoretically a very good thing. The democratization of lies is the converse. And there's no cure for that. Certainly not on the horizon. It's something we're all going to have to grapple with.
2: Because you, you can get very, very rich from peddling lies, essentially, which is... Um...
0: Take take the publisher, any publisher you want. Um, I'll name no names, but some huge corporations are peddling lies and making a fortune. And I used to think that quality will out and win in the end of the day, but I would suggest that those readers or listeners or watchers who are watching the lies believe that it's quality, which is scary.
2: It's difficult to see where where that'll end up. Like There almost doesn't seem to be a, a good resolution to it.
0: It has to be legislated, and I don't know a single government in the world that has the sensibility to know how to legislate it.
2: Well, the the US is having a good attempt, but I don't know how successful it will be.
0: I don't know. I'm I'm, uh, at a crossroads where, you know, I'm incredibly positive about the industry. Yes, I think it's the next golden age. And that following right behind us is all this bad concepts, bad material, greed, lies, uh, distribution of, of, you know, crazy ideas.
2: Um, and a lot of publishers, uh, going back to some of the opportunities, a lot of publishers drawing up podcasts. Um, but what do you think the next sort of big thing will be in publishing? And I think perhaps slightly more importantly, where would you put your bets if you were a publisher now?
0: I am a publisher. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if you, if you were working at a, a no, big I publishing a house. <laughs> um,
0: no, the, 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 clearly, what everybody needs now and what most people, large or small, even companies of two or three people, circulations of 5,000 or 500,000 is diversity. Diversity of platforms is the only sensible path. You ask me what's the next big thing? I have no idea. But I do know that every six months there is a new thing. So you've got to keep your eye on the horizon Um, clubhouse is a big thing now. People are very enthusiastic about clubhouse or or Substack. Constantly move the ball. Constantly stay ahead. If you're stagnant, you're dead.
2: How do you balance that, though, with the potential pitfalls of, um, I, I suppose it's called shiny new object syndrome, where you then jump on every new trend, even though it might only last a couple of months?
0: I think there's a difference between trend analysis, and um, staying true to your vision. So whatever your particular niche is, if you can define it and understand that this is what your readers want, then I don't think you need to go after every shiny new object, just the ones that will resonate with your readership, your listenership, your viewership.
2: I suppose, yeah, you're still using email even though that was declared dead sort of 10, 15 years ago. (laughs)
0: Yeah. You know it's odd that I'm still on AOL but I've trained the world to be able to reach me on an AOL account and that's why I still keep it.
2: <laughs> um, so have you got any examples of sort of publishers or or individual creators you think are, are really doing well in, in today's environment?
0: Um, the Economist of course is doing well. The Wall Street Journal is doing gangbusters. Look at the New York Times they're on their way to 10 million subscribers. Who would have ever thought the New York Times would have 10 million digital subscribers? It's staggering. They make more money now in digital than they do in print and good for them.
2: Well, I saw um, the other week, though there were people saying that that's slowing down, but surely you get to the stage where there's just not anybody else who will subscribe.
0: I'm, yeah, I, I read that too or heard that. I'm not concerned that it's slowing down. They're at seven, I think seven and a half million now. Their goal is ten million by 2025. I'll bet you that they make that goal in 2025, if not before. You know, and, and a lot depends on what's happening in the world. Um, I believe the pandemic has trained a new generation of readers to become subscribers beyond the New York Times. Everywhere, we have spent a year training them to pay for, for thought and word, and they're going to do so. They're not going to, that's, I don't think that's something they're going to unlearn.
2: Yeah. Is there a potential risk there that they could end up, you'll end up with a situation where there are sort of uh, 10 big publications that everybody subscribes to and sort of the publications in the middle end up losing out.
0: No, that's not my experience. And, and uh, as, um, as I look around the world, There are new titles starting up now more than in years. There are new titles popping up everywhere. So there may be some giants, um, but nature abhors a vacuum and so does business. If there's a niche out there somewhere that hasn't been uh, fulfilled and catered to, somebody will do it and make money at it.
2: I love your optimism.
0: (laughs) It's part of who I am.
2: And the last question we ask all our guests is, what is the last thing you read or saw which really affected you? <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> the last thing I read was the history of the Celts. And okay. um, I was fascinated by it. And so, in, you know, in a big way, I was, uh, I was moved by the, the, the journey and the history. It was quite a fantastic read.
1: And if you would like to support us in the long term, please don't forget that Ko-Fi now has a monthly subscription option. We wavered back and forth on whether we were ever gonna offer this, but we have taken the plunge and decided that in addition to letting people do one-off donations, if they want to support us, they can also choose that monthly option. So please do hop along to ko-fi.com slash media voices and just give what you can. Open your heart. Well, thank, thank
2: you very much, to Thomas Bechdel, for spotting
1: that. <laughs> yeah, that was good.
3: Actually, more importantly, thanks very much to Thomas for telling the world about it. Mm. Yep, definitely. God love her.
2: And if you are desperate for more Media Voices content, I mean, after this, why wouldn't you be? <laughs> then you can sign up to our daily newsletter. It contains just four of the most important media stories of the day as curated by us and a link to our latest episodes. So that's all you need to know about the day in your inbox at 7am every morning. And you can sign up to that on the website voices.media.
3: And after our awards this year, we had this little get together, a uh, little Zoom get together, and we've decided we're going to do it again. Publisher podcast Insiders Meetup. Uh, it's this Wednesday, uh, that's the 26th of May, in case you're listening on catch up. Uh, don't vote on any of the competitions if it's on catch up. Uh, it's uh wednesday 26th of may 4 p.m bst is that british summer time yes come and chat about podcasting with us
1: also this wednesday please do look out for our upcoming conversations episode with the Eurosport and pod install talk about how you can make your content evergreen through audio but until next week when we're going to be back with a fantastic guest and another look through the wild and crazy world of media, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Bye. Ta-ta.